Thanks for listening to First Baptist Church of Conway. We pray that this message is both an encouragement and a challenge to you as you grow in faith in Jesus. We are happy to provide this resource to you, but as you know, this alone cannot meet the need we all have for fellowship and corporate worship. So we hope you'll be able to join us this Sunday at 10 a.m. Or if you're not in the area, give us a call and we'll do our best to help you find a good church to visit. For now, here is this week's message. So as promised, to, we're already laughing good. All right, so as promised, today we're going to discuss women in ministry, okay? This is a continuation of last week. If you weren't here last week, you can catch back up online, but we're going through the a book of 1 Corinthians, and we came across this controversial section of Paul's letters. Now, we're going to deal with it today. This will be super, super fun for all of us. Hope you are willing to skip lunch. We'll be here all day, okay? Now, listen. My goal for you this morning, you need to hear this, this is very important. My goal for you this morning is not to convince you of anything, but hopefully to help you read the Bible better. That's my goal for you, for you to learn to read the Bible better. Because years ago, I stumbled across something, accidentally of course, about my theology And embracing an idea really helped me radically grow in my faith, but more importantly, it helped me love other people better. Love other people better. And loving other people better is far more important than holding to a certain secondary theological issue. What I learned, and I hope you can learn this morning, is it is okay to disagree with people. It is okay and extremely mature as Jesus followers who um, embrace and love other Christians who believe a little bit differently than you do. It is okay to agree to what? Disagree, right? You've heard it. It is okay. Like, it's all right. What I have learned is just because somebody believes something a bit differently than me doesn't mean they're a liberal. It doesn't mean they're a fundamentalist. It doesn't mean they're uneducated. It doesn't mean all of those other labels we like to attach, we like to throw, and we like to call other people. It doesn't mean that. It could simply just mean, hear me out, They have come to a different conclusion than you. We're like, Brian, it can't be that simple. But it can. Like, it's it's okay. And on a side note, even if they are a liberal or fundamentalist or whatever else, it doesn't mean they're bad people. You can still love others. Pretty sure that was commanded in the Bible, right? We talked about that. If you weren't here a couple weeks ago, you should go back and listen to it. Loving others is important. You see, for me, let me tell you a little bit. I went to a conservative, what we would, what, what's labeled a conservative seminary. Very Bible-based. What, what this means, and I'm not being funny, it's very Bible-based. Our focus is learning to read and understand the Bible. That's what, that's what I focused on. That's what I learned on. That's what I love to do. But then, as I grew in ministry and I started meeting other leaders, I had the opportunity to build relationships with people who believed a bit differently than me. And I learned, and I started learning, that they love Jesus, they love the Bible, but they believe differently than me on secondary issues. And my gut reaction was, when I knew they didn't believe the same thing as me, my gut reaction was, liberal. I have them too. Like, let's just be honest. Like, they don't use the Bible. They don't read it right. Wrong. But they were great human beings. And that bothered me because they're not supposed to be. And so I had to think through all of that. Now, here's the deal. They they believe differently on secondary issues. Secondary issues are not key to salvation issues. Okay, primary issues, we got to agree on if we're going to talk about Christianity. That is who Jesus is, that he's the Messiah, the Son of God that he's the only way to salvation, 
his atonement for our sin is necessary for salvation. Like these are primary issues. We don't disagree about this. This is an orthodoxy. Like we agreed on these, but secondary issues like what's the correct mode of baptism? Can women be in ministry? Like these are things we disagreed about. These are important, but not heretical. But what's common in today's world, let's be honest, I'm guilty of this too, is name calling, putting people into boxes and assuming whatever we need to assume so we can feel superior to them and our thinking and our understanding, none of which is actually helpful. Might make you feel better about yourself, but it's not actually helpful. What is helpful is learning Leaning in and listening, taking the time to understand where people are coming from. It builds empathy and respect. This is important as we talk about these issues. For instance, when I learned that these people believe differently than me about, men, uh, about women and ministry, I started going on a journey. I started learning more to hear them out. Rather than dismissing them, I said, well... These guys got like PhD in the New Testament. They can't be uneducated. I see them read the Bible and talk about Jesus. I see the love for others. They have to be Christians. So what's going on? I couldn't figure out. Listen, I was, I was, I was challenged. I couldn't figure out how they love Jesus. They love the Bible, but they seem to allow what the Bible clearly, clearly in my mind, prohibited. So I got to the bottom of it. Well, I tried. And it sent me on a journey, one I am still on, so everything I say today could change tomorrow. I'm just letting you know, that's where we're at. Okay, I'm still growing, I'm still learning, I'm still working through these things. And what I learned is that perhaps, perhaps I wasn't the educated one on these issues. So I had to set aside pride, Ego, that's not fun, is it? Come on, we like to carry that stuff with us, don't we? I had to set that stuff aside and take a posture of learning. And I started reading people who believed very, very differently than me. And I had to work through their material. And then I bought another book and then another book. And I just kept reading and growing and trying to say, okay, how does all this work together? And listen, here's what I do know. There's a big difference between trying to fully understand the Bible and trying to disprove it. I was never on a journey trying to disprove the Bible. I was on a journey trying to understand it better. So for clarity, just so we can get some language and some common ground, for clarity on my journey, I never questioned the inspiration of the Bible. I mean, I have questioned that plenty, but I settled that a long time ago. I believe the Bible is the inspired word of God right? Through human authors. I believe that. I did not question the inerrancy of God's word, though I have questioned that plenty as well. I settled that a long time ago. I believe the Bible is without error on all matters of faith and practice. Some of you don't agree with that. That's on you. I do. This is where I'm at in my faith. So I believe the Bible is the inspired by God and without errors on all matter of faith and practice for the Christian life. So hear me out. My journey was never about the authority of God's word. It says what it says. And it's our job to, ch to change our behavior and our practices according with God's word not change our beliefs, excuse me, not change God's word in accordance with our desires and our hopes. There's a simple word for this. It's called repentance. It should be in every Christian's vocabulary. So I say all that to say I am a card-carrying conservative evangelical. You want a box for me? There it is, right there. Okay? I'm a card-carrying conservative evangelical. That, that's a great box to put me in. But what I learned on my journey that I'm still on, as I said, that perhaps things aren't as clear as we think they are. In fact, women in ministry isn't nearly as black and white as people claim. That is, and here's my challenge, if we actually read the Bible, 
And not just listen to what someone else says. Let's be honest. Come on now. We actually have to read it and work through these issues. Because there's something going on in Scripture that I'm not exactly clear on. I'm still working through that perhaps we may have been wrong, the church as a whole, of limiting half of the world's population from living into their God-given spiritual gifts. And that's a scary thing to think about. Like really scary. So this whole issue came up for discussion because of this verse. I wish Paul just didn't put in there. He says, 1 Corinthians 14, 34 to 35. He said, women should be silent during the church meetings. It is not proper for them to speak. They should be submissive, just as the law says. If they have any questions, they should go ask their husbands at home. For it's improper for a woman to speak in church meetings. And this, of course, causes all women and a lot of people to gasp. We look at this and we say, here's our ammunition for Paul being outdated, antiquated. Paul is misogynistic. He's sexist. And the Bible is just a patriarchal book we need to throw out. And listen, if that's what you're looking for, you're going to find it. If that's how you're going in to look at the Bible, you're going to see just that. But you don't have to read the Bible that way. We can rather take a step back, try to put ourselves in a culture that was 2,000 years ago and understand a little bit more of what's going on. You see, history tells us, you probably already know this, that the world has pretty much, almost always, been a patriarchal society. And in many parts of the world, it still is. And this simply means that men are in charge. And women need to be what? Yep, right here, silent and submissive. You can see them, but you shouldn't have to hear them. None of you husbands need to say amen to that. I'm just throwing that out there. Just shh, shh. Like that, that's been the case of the world. You don't have to get mad at it. You don't have to get upset about it. That's, that's just how the world has generally worked. One scholar writes this. He says this. Let's read it together. He says, next slide. Oh, never mind. It's not in there. Go back. Scott didn't put in the updated slides like I asked him to. Here is the quote. Yes, I called Scott out. He's on staff. He's okay. I'm allowed to do that. It says this, not so long ago in the West and not so far away in the world even today, patriarch made sense because it assumed that women were indeed, listen, it assumed that women were indeed inferior in many ways pertinent to leadership. Such was the world of the New Testament church and has been in most times and places. Women were understood to be less rational, more emotional, less courageous, more sentimental, less objective, and more intuitive, and so on. Thus, it made sense for men to dominate and women to submit. Just, listen, here we go. Just as it made the same sort of sense for white people to dominate everyone else they encountered in the age of spreading the empire if everyone else was understood to be inferior and subhuman. That's just how the way the world has been. Throughout history, people dominated people. You're like, well, how do they do it? Well, the same way you do it. You put people on a box, you put a label on them, and then that allows you to dismiss everything else they say. Don't you? They're a Democrat. <laughs> They're a Republican. <laughs> we still do the same things, folks. We put people in boxes in order to dominate, to dismiss, and ignore. They were just more violent back then, okay? That's what happens. And so in the New Testament times and throughout the world, women were generally, not always, okay, but generally less educated people. Men ruled, women were subordinate to men's needs. But we never see God commanding this sort of thing. 
And as I've explained before, the Bible is very clear about the husbands needing to take responsibilities to lead their home. Like, they're the ones responsible for uh, the home, spiritual things. Like, that's just what the Bible says. But nowhere do we see the Bible commanding all men everywhere to have authority over all women everywhere, which is a patriarchal society. God never commands that as a society thing. In fact, throughout the Old Testament, which is clearly patriarchal, men are in charge, women are not, throughout the pages of the Old Testament, we see God using women to do some great things. We see people like Ruth, Deborah, Esther, and others. Even in the Old Testament, which is pretty violent if you've never read it, even in the Old Testament, women aren't described as something less than. We see stories of how women are extremely capable in a society that did not value them. And so generally when we read stories or we read history, we have to understand they're just describing the way the world is, the way things function. But in fact, if we read the Old Testament, we will see very clearly that men are capable of horrible things. When you read the Bible, stop looking at it to offend just you. It offends all of us. Men are never painted as awesome people except for Jesus. Men are painted as pretty terrible things. So it's it's an equal opportunity. Like Everybody's described as not making it or not living up to perfect standards of God. And so we have to understand the principle of accommodation. Um, This guy continued. Oh, I was going to a quote. Never mind. Here it is. He says, God works within human limitations, both individual and corporate limitations, to transform the world according to good purposes. To be blunt, he says, God works with what he's got and with what we've got. When faced with our shortcomings and sin, God does not erase us and create a whole new situation. This is how we understand God working in a polygamist society, polygamist environment with men having lots of different wives, in some cases, 700. Crazy, I know. That's just what the Bible tells us. But he never commands that. That's how we see God working within racism and within these other situations. This is the way the world is. God chooses to work in those messes. And let's be honest, aren't we glad that God chooses to work and messes? Could he work in your life? Remember, this is God. He comes into the mess. He doesn't demand it first to clean up and get perfect and then come to him. No, no, no. He goes into the mess. That's our God. So God works within the culture to transform the culture. And we see this throughout scriptures, that God doesn't wait for us to be perfect, that despite our imperfection, the gospel comes into our lives and God chooses to use us. And throughout the pages of the New Testament, we see when it comes to women in ministry, something even more interesting happening. From the very beginning of the New Testament, we see God chooses to use a strong man to carry this, nope, sorry, that was a woman, a woman to carry the Savior of the world. Did God even need a man in that situation? Think about it. Could Jesus have just shown up, folks? Sure, he could have. God can do what he wants. If you didn't know that, like, that's the premise. We got to believe that first. God can do what he wants. But he chooses to use Mary, who is described as nothing but extraordinary. And when we see Jesus interacting with women, this this should jump off the pages to you. It's a pretty big deal. Like Jesus interacts with women in a very different way. In John chapter four, you see the woman at the well. She's surprised that Jesus is even talking to her. But yet he was. Not only did he move past the racial issues of the day, he moved past the genders issues of the day, looked past her sinfulness and started telling her about himself. And interestingly, she becomes an evangelist. She goes and tells the whole city all about Jesus and brings them to him. She brings the whole city, folks. She's like, hey, you got to check this dude out. 
Like he told me all my junk. It's a woman who does this. In John chapter 8, the woman called an adultery where a man gets off the hook for whatever reason. Isn't that the way of the world women say amen? Y'all, come on, ladies. I'm here for you today. Don't even agree with me. Fine then. So listen, in John chapter 8, the man gets off the hook, and what do they want to do to the woman? Yeah, they want to kill her. He's like, where's this guy? I don't know. He's out getting a drink. He's, at, he's getting Starbucks. Who knows what's going on with him? But let's kill this woman for what she's done. And so check it out. The town people want to kill her. The culture and the people around Jesus want to kill this woman. So what was it like for women back then? Like that. And what does Jesus do? He steps into that. He doesn't condone her. He doesn't condemn her. But he tells her to leave that life of sin. Everybody else wanted to kill her, not him. Something's very different in the life of Jesus. He heals women. He helps women. He treats them as if they too are made in the image of God. And they have value and dignity. In John chapter, excuse me, in Luke chapter 10, we see Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, learning from him. And her sister was upset, said, Jesus, Martha did. Martha said, Jesus, tell Mary to come do the household chores like a good woman's supposed to do. Mary said, I mean, Jesus said, no. I'm not taking away from her what she's doing. She's learning from me. She has found the greater thing. Jesus is greater than household chores. Some of you need to remember that before you get busy doing the dishes, cleaning up the house. Read your Bible first. Jesus is greater than those things. He said, I'm not taking this from her. So she could sit and learn at the feet of Jesus just like any disciple would. At the resurrection of Jesus, who were the first evangelists to go tell everybody that he rose from the grave? The men? Nope. Where were they? I don't know. They were drinking Starbucks or something. I don't know what. I don't know what they were doing. But women, Matthew tells us, they were the ones who went and found. And in fact, they are the one who were commanded to go. And all scholars agree, this is pretty cool for history. All scholars agree, nobody would make that story up. Nobody, because women's testimony were not thought of as, as, as right or good, like they couldn't testify in court. So women being the first evangelist to share about the resurrection, nobody would have made that up if it didn't happen that way. Because nobody trusted women. But yet, they are the ones who are supposed to go and tell everybody that Jesus really did rise and he's coming to meet you. So evidently, Jesus used both men and women for his work. And listen, this is not creating a new narrative. This isn't reading anything other than what's already in there for us. Jesus treated women very different than the culture around him did, to which we should all lean in and go, what is he saying by what he's doing? And then we get to Paul, right? And he just messes everything up, right? He's misogynistic, which means a strong prejudice against woman. He, people say he's a product of his time. He just beats women and shuts them down. Listen, this is very important to understand. That isn't even close to being true. Not even close. If Paul was a product of his time, you would not hear about all the women co-workers this man had. In the book of Acts, we read about Lydia, who provided for Paul. The church in Philippi met in her home. The whole town turned against Paul and Silas, and where did he go? They went into her house where the church met. Like, she owned the church. It met the building, right? The building, not the people. Jesus owns that. We can talk about that a different day, okay? But they all came to this lady's house. In Corinth, we see Paul meeting Priscilla and Aquila. He taught them and took both of them on his mission trip. And we see Priscilla and Aquila correcting and teaching the apostle, excuse me, a teaching Apollos in his theology. Like a woman is correcting a man's theology, that's a, that's a pretty big deal, and her name's always mentioned first, which means she probably had more prominence. You see that in Acts chapter 18. 
At the end of Romans, which I know is a super hard book to work through by the time you get to 16, you see names, you're like, look, I'm not even going through that. We're just going to move on. But listen, there's some important stuff at the end of Romans that says this. First up, Romans 61, you have Phoebe. How many of y'all know Phoebe? Raise your hands if you know Phoebe. Y'all don't know her. She's been dead a long time. Don't lie. Come on, Romans 16.1. He says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a what? You're like, Brian, what kind of translation are you using? I said, it's right here. New Living Translation, okay? In the church. Now, right here, this word is translated deacon. You say, well, why? This is really complicated. Stay with me. Because it's the word for deacon. And that's why. I know, you laugh. But other versions, which is why I don't use them, that was kind of a dig. I shouldn't have said that. Romans 16.1 says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who's a what? Like what? Why'd they do that? Because the word servant is deacon. The word deacon is servant. It's the same word. But because it's a woman, they're like, well, well, we're going to put servant there instead. You're like, yeah, but it's deacon. They're like, I know. So it can't be a deacon then. Has to be the word servant. But folks, I'm just letting you know the word servant is deacon. The word deacon is servant. This is the same word used, uh, often translated as minister or deacon. It's the same word found here in Philippians, Philippians 1.1. 1, 1. So I'm showing you, this is the, can you go back one slide? This is the ESV English Standard Version. Good, good, solid version. Nothing wrong with it. They translate it servant here. But then when we talk in general terms, Philippians 1, 1, it says this. Look, next verse. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and same word. Here they chose to translate a deacon. The other place to translate a servant. Whatever you say this is, you got to say the other one is because it's the same word. And that's where debates start coming together. It's the exact same Greek word. But let's go back to this. Romans 1, 2. This is pretty cool. Romans 16, verse 1 and 2. It says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a deacon in the church. Welcome her in the Lord who is worthy. Excuse me. Welcome her in the Lord as one who is worthy of honor among God's people. Help her in whatever she needs, for she has been helpful to many and especially to me. So when we look at this lady, Phoebe, we have to realize that whatever your definition is for a deacon, this, she then makes it in there because the word deacon is servant. The word servant is deacon. And this is what the Bible actually says. Okay. So we can just move past that. And if you believe like I do in the accuracy of God's word, then you just believe that and we move on. Okay. So Phoebe's a deacon. Now, What's even more interesting is why does Paul say to welcome her with open arms? Well, scholars generally agree. We don't know, okay? But scholars generally agree on both sides. She is probably the one delivering the letter to Rome. So she's the one taking this theological masterpiece to the letter in Rome. A what? Woman. Say it with me. A woman, right, is delivering the letter to the church. Now, most likely, again, we don't know, but this is just from their culture, what people do know. The one delivering the letter would have generally read the letter. And check this out. If they were to have questions, you're like, no one has questions about the book of Romans, Brian. We get that right off the bat. You've never read it. And if they would have had questions about the letter, guess who they would have asked? The woman. Paul trusted his most dense theological letter to a woman who took the letter, probably read the letter, and explained the letter. If that's not teaching, folks, I don't know what is. And perhaps Paul trusted other people and men with other theological letters to the caliber of Romans. But we don't have those because men took them, right? That's why we have this one. Let's keep going. Romans 16, 35. He says, give my greetings to Priscilla and Aquila. My, what is it? Co-workers in the ministry of Christ Jesus. In fact, they're the ones that risked their life for me. I'm thankful for them. And so are all the Gentile churches. Also give my greetings to the church that meets in his home, right? 
Oh, they're home. Again, Priscilla is mentioned first, which means she had more prominence. They are both co-workers, co-laborers. This thing with Paul who goes on missionary journeys, teaches people about the gospel. They are with Paul together. They're church leaders. They're people he trusts. This is both a man and a woman. Then we get to verse 7, which is super fun. He says, greetings, Andronicus, that's what his name is, just decided, and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. It's a super fun verse. It says, they are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Now, you can write this down and start Googling this one, because this will be super fun for all of you who are interested in this. The question is, does this mean that they are esteemed among the apostles or they are outstanding among the apostles. Esteemed means they are known by the apostles, or does it mean they are an apostle, not capital A like the first 12, but the other A's that we see, um, lowercase a, the other apostles we do see that, that scripture tells us about. They are standing among the apostles saying that they are both actually apostles. And you're like, well, that's, that's just a lot to dig through. No, that's not even the fun part. One of them is what? Junia is a female. But here's the fun stuff. Now listen, this isn't the level of like Da Vinci Code, but I'm just being honest with you about church scandals, okay? Because it's super fun to think about this stuff. Listen, her name, um, go back one, please. Her name got changed. So it's Junia. Modern scholarship has fixed this. Now go to the next slide. Her name was masculine for about 100 years in the Bible. Because when they got the Greek manuscripts and they, they said, okay, well, she's being called an apostle. Well, she can't be called an apostle. So let's change this to a masculine name. You're like, Brian, it's a conspiracy. I know it's true though. For a hundred years, she disappeared. The problem is, do you know how many examples they have of this being an actual name? Zero. And they have 1,600 examples of the other one being feminine. But they're like, I don't know. This might be a woman called an apostle. Maybe it's male. Like, let's just go with it. Maybe it's just male. And so it disappeared. Modern scholarship has corrected it, thank the Lord, which now even the more conservative translations go, okay, it is a female, but it just means that they knew her. It doesn't mean she was an actual apostle. Let's move. It's like, okay, guys, let's, let's keep going. But you can look that up for yourself. The point is, chances are she's being called an apostle here. Like, see, some leadership stuff going on. And so what we read about Paul and his ministry, it's, it's alongside of women. He holds them to high esteem and trusts them with some pretty important stuff. And so we can't just cherry pick some verses from Paul and make him out to be a horrible person. We can't just assume that he's a product of his time because Paul is a product of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we see him co-laboring with both men and women. Now, we say, well, what about those verses, Brian? I know, I'm glad you're with me. That's what we're going to go over next. We go, what do we do about those troubling verses that seem to say women can't do anything? Well, first, we have to understand this. Going to the troubling sections to learn about women in ministry is the equivalent of going to the divorce sections and trying to learn about a healthy marriage. Just letting you know. Like, what does the Bible say about a good marriage? And all you read about is how you can get divorced, you're probably not off to a good start. If you want to learn about women in ministry and you just go to prohibiting passages, you're probably not off to a good start. We're starting in the wrong places. We have to learn how to read stories. We have to learn to read letters because that is what God has given us. Now, let's dive into some of this. Can't dive into all of it, but we'll dive into some of it. 1 Corinthians 11, we read this. It says this. A man dishonors his head if he covers his head while praying or prophesying. But a woman dishonors her head if she prays or prophesies without covering on her head. For this is the same as shaving her head. Move past that. We've talked about it. But what we see is the assumption is women are what? Praying and prophesying. Quietly or probably out loud. Out loud, he says they have to cover their heads. So we know there's some modesty things. There's some cultural issues Paul's aware of that he's talking about. But the assumption is that women, excuse me, that men are praying and prophesying and women are also praying and prophesying. This is what we know. 
He said, there's some culture issues you need to deal with, but hey, women are going to do this. And then all of a sudden, a couple verses later, a couple chapters, we see this, what we read earlier, chapter 14. It says, women should be silent. Well, like, well, Paul, what are you doing? And this is where we have to use some critical thinking skills and go, well, that cannot mean that women have to be completely silent because he just said they're praying and prophesying. So it can't mean this whole women can't do anything or talk at all. What this is probably referring to, excuse me, um, women can't do anything at all. And remember, as we looked at last week, this is the third time Paul silenced somebody in just a couple of verses. He silenced women here, it seems seemingly, but he also silenced people who were speaking in tongues without an interpreter. And he also silenced people if someone else is coming up to prophesy. So he's telling a whole bunch of people to be quiet for some reason because of the chaos. And so with everybody else he's silencing in this section, follow me, he's speaking about situational things. There's very situational stuff about order of worship going on here. And I think that's uh, what the case is with the women is, is going on as well. There's a ton of different thoughts. I'll give you a quick version of where I am on this. I think he is, a lim- excuse me, I think he is limiting women from evaluating prophecies that he mentioned in verse 29. You can go back to 29, you can circle at it, read it in context. I think what's going on, he's pointing back to the husband and wife relationship. Um, Here good, you go husband, so you got this. Every time he limits women, pay attention, there's a husband around. Something to do with the marriage context is going on. And so I think what's happening is he's pointing back to the husband and wife relationship which he also does in chapter 11, and something I think is going on with marriages and misunderstanding happening. Now, Paul's clear, there's a headship in your marriage. Husbands are taking responsibility and lead the household. That's there. But this does not mean that women cannot exercise their God-given abilities in the church. What seems to me is when they're going over the evaluations and questioning, he doesn't want women to evaluate and question others, potentially their husbands, and cause a disruption in the church. In other words, the church isn't the place to start throwing your husband under the bus. You're like, Brian, that would never happen. You ever been to a Sunday school class? Yes, it does. Like the church is not the place you bring that stuff from home in here. So he's saying, listen, you need to deal with that stuff at home. Something else is going on behind the scenes we aren't sure of, but we know it can't mean that women can't do anything. We do know it's order. he's bringing order to a chaotic situation, and this has something to do with the husband and wife relationship. Something else is going on bigger. Because what if you don't have a husband? You can't ever ask a question? Right? I mean, there's so many different things to work through there. So we're like, you know what? There's something happening we aren't sure of. They were, but something's going on. And then we get to the next one, which is even more complicated. First Timothy. It's just simple, right? Women should learn quietly and submissively. Do not let a woman teach men or have authority over them. Let them listen quietly. For God made Adam first and afterwards he made Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived by Satan. The woman was deceived and sin was the result. We're like, this is clear. It's Eve's fault. Everything's Eve's fault. Therefore, men are the leaders, because we never mess up, right? We're like, Paul, why didn't you mention that she was deceived, but he did it on purpose. Like, there's something going on there that we're not sure of. So we see, it says what it says. It looks very little, very easy to read, and then the next verse happens. Verse 15, but women will be saved through childbearing. How does a woman get saved? Have a child. So the Bible says, you got to have children be saved, assuming, right, and then it's works-based. They continue to live in faith, love, and holiness, and modesty. So if we take this at face value like we want to do the verses preceding, it means that women are saved through childbearing, which brings up a whole lot of other questions. Like, what does this mean, and how does this actually work? So bring it all back together. Put the verse up here. Next slide. We see something else going on. This is the whole section. We can't just cherry pick and say, well, this is literal. This is figurative. The whole thing is kind of causing us to go something deeper is going on. And this verse, it doesn't matter if you're conservative. It doesn't matter if you're not conservative. This verse causes problems for everyone 
because it's problematic in what it seemingly he says. And again, there are so many different ways you could read this. Again, my goal is not telling you how to think. My goal is for you to learn how to think and start researching this on your own. But there's so many ideas. But what we cannot brush past is this. Women should what? You're like, that's not a big deal. Yes, it is. He's not discarding women. He's not saying they they can't learn. He's saying that women can learn. Women can sit and learn. Women can be a part of what the church is doing. Women shouldn't be second class. They shouldn't be out there somewhere. That they should sit in and understand and hear the gospel. He's ensuring that women are learning the gospel. Folks, that is a very big deal. And secondly, what I think is going on Is there something about usurping happening going on where people are trying to take control of the church? They're trying to rule and run the church? Because we know from the what Paul's writing about in this situation in Ephesus, right in Timothy, that there's heresy being taught. And so it seems like Paul is bringing order to a disruptive situation. So he's telling the women here to be submissive by the same way he tells all Christians everywhere to be submissive. Like it has to be just a woman thing. No. Read Ephesians 5.21. Submit to one another out of what? Reverence for Christ. Like submitting to authority is like a Christian thing. It's like what we're all supposed to do. But to be fair, we cannot ignore something else going on with this authority and teaching thing happening. So perhaps, this is where I'm at today, Okay. Perhaps the best I've seen and what people try to work through is that perhaps this is limiting women in some way of the teaching authoritative role. And you're like, well, Brian, what does that mean? What that means, generally, a lot of people say, all right, well, the woman, women are not allowed to be the senior pastor, like the authoritative teaching role. You're like, Brian, that's not what he says. I know. We're all trying to work through it the best we can. Because in one point, like, I agree, we got to learn how to read in proper context. I agree. The other point, we can't ignore what it does say. And so there is something going on there. You're like, Brian, well, how could you? But listen, let me help you out. This is not a big deal. Do you know why? Number one, I am not in charge of all churches everywhere, right? Right? Number two, I'm not stepping down for someone else to take my job here. We're good. (laughs) Like, we're good. And so, like, even though this is where I'm at, I... We're okay. Does that mean women can't teach? Of course women can teach. I don't believe this is saying that the women can't teach. I don't believe that it says women can't um, be leaders. We see leaders all throughout the New Testament. We see Paul using. I mean, that, that can't be true. I think there's something else going on we're not quite sure. Because Paul's concern, again, there's something about childbearing. We see Adam and Eve going on. We see something else about the marriage relationship happening. And what I think Paul is actually doing in these sections is rather than quote unquote limiting women, I think what he is more concerned about is healthy marriages and something's happening in that marriage relationship that's not okay. And he's saying, hey, that needs to be fixed. That needs to come together. But we can't dismiss it. We got to deal with some things that are uncomfortable and we might not like where everything lands, but hey, that's what we do as Christians. We work through it. We don't dismiss it. We work through it and try to understand it. But I do not think Paul is saying women can't teach. I do not think Paul is saying women can't lead. I don't agree with that at all. If anything, if he is limiting, I believe he may be limiting from the teacher, authority, maybe senior pastor role. That's where I'm at today. So when we read these two sections from Paul, what I hope you see, if nothing else, is it's not as clear as people may make it out to be. There's something else happening. And all scholars have to deal with seemingly Paul saying women can talk in 1 Corinthians 11, then all of a sudden they're not allowed to talk in 1 Corinthians 14, or they have to deal with the fact that women are saved through childbearing. Like either way, there are issues that people have to work through and it's okay to work through them. It's okay. But just know we don't follow everything the Bible says. It's like, yes, we do. No, we don't. In 1 Timothy, before it quiets women, it tells men to pray with their holy hands lifted where? Lifted up. How many of y'all did that today? 
or in direct violation of God's word. So then we have another question. We're almost done, I promise. I knew today was going to be long. I didn't tell you that. You just, I figured you knew. Okay, listen. The other thing we have to take into account when it comes to all these issues is this idea of the cultural aspects of the Bible and ask, is that for everywhere of all times or was that then and this is now? Some things are cultural. So we're like, hey, with men praying with their hands lifted up, we don't do that today. They did back then. And so when we look at that was then, this is now, some things of the culture, like head coverings, we're like, hey, that was then, this is now. We're not in the same culture, so that doesn't apply. And when we think about women, we have to understand women were generally uneducated, and the society which they lived in, they were subordinate. They, they, they had to be submissive to, like, men in general. But that isn't true for our society today. So is this a command for all times everywhere? Was this a cultural thing in order for the gospel to flourish? And you say, Brian, you can't do that. Let me ask you a question. How many of you have slaves? I'm glad no one raised their hand on that one. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to lie. I'm glad we're zero. For a long time, preachers made the case for slavery because of the Bible. It's true. Paul and Peter are both rather clear. Slaves are to do what? Obey their masters. So then we, then do we make a case for slavery with the idea of freedom of religion, therefore we can own slaves? Of course not. And if you think so, this is the wrong church for you. I just want to let you know. But the Bible was dealing with slavery, so they had to deal with these things. And so we understand that slavery was a thing, and rather than blowing up culture, Paul, Peter, they put these limitations on it, and they told them to look at their slaves as brothers and sisters and told their slaves to be submissive, just like we're told to be submissive to Christ, just like women are, like submissive is a general principle for all of us. And while they never outlawed it, they never said it was a great idea either. In fact, it's because of the gospel, slavery is gone in our culture today. We have to remember the principle of accommodation. So in the same way, we no longer live in a patriarchal society, folks. We don't. That believe that women are less than men. Women are now educated, have rights, and at least, I can't speak for all, at least my generation believes women are just as awesome. Like, women are great. We want them to succeed. We want them to do great things. You have no idea how much I get caught up and forget that other people believe differently than that. I just assume women are they're brilliant. So we have to ask ourselves, does God command a patriarchal society or was he simply working within the culture that existed? In the same way he worked when slaves were a thing. If God commanded a patriarchal society, then throughout scripture, we would never see glimpses of women doing great things. But we do, as we've looked at, both in the life of Jesus and in Paul. So we have to ask ourselves, Paul worked in slavery, as this is, was Paul working within slavery the same way he's working in a patriarchal society? But just like Paul put a time bomb on slavery when you read the letter of Flamen, uh, Phil, Philemon, how do we say it? Philemon. I always mess his name up. Okay, Philemon. Was he doing, was he putting a ticking time bomb on women as well? Said, hey, I know we view them now, but listen, we're going to open the door for women to do things later. It seems to me as if he was. And in our culture, women are educated. Women have great leadership abilities and potential. So I think they should be allowed to exercise those God-given gifts. And I wonder, I wonder, as I sit back and think about all the Baptist preachers who are staying true to God's word and making a case for why slavery should stay, I wonder if generations from now people won't look back at us and wonder if we are not doing the same thing to women. I think this is a big deal. And this is not, for the record, a slippery slope towards liberalism. Not even close. It's embracing the gospel and trying to work it out in every generation because folks, a sin is a sin. But hear me out. No one is ever in sin for being a person of color. 
Like, that's not sinful. Being a woman is not sinful. So we try to say, well, that means you'll allow this. No, a sin is a sin. A woman is not a sin. Being a person of color is not a sin. We're not talking about the same things. We're talking about human beings made in the image of God. That's a different thing altogether. But allowing them to be who God has created them to be is a big deal. So outlawing slavery and giving women rights are not the same thing as accommodating sinful lifestyle. And I still stand that the Holy Spirit determines the gifting of people, not gender. Therefore, it is our job as a church to allow people, male and female, to thrive and live into their God-given gifts, whatever that may be decided by him. So, with all of that said, this is where I'm at on my journey. And the great thing about First Baptist Church, like, bro, this is a great thing. We invite you to go on yours. We don't have to believe the exact same way on all these issues. But this is where I stand, and this is what we're going to teach in the church. But we invite you to go and learn more about this. If you believe in a patriarchal society, I just want to let you know, this is not the church for you. There's one right down the road, though. This isn't it. But what I hope you see is we can disagree about the issue, but still agree on the inspiration, the authority, and accuracy of God's word. We can still love our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we should learn from people who disagree with us. Try to grow and still believe that God's word is true. So I don't have all this figured out. But what I do believe is that both men and women are gifted. Both men and women are gifted by God. And we need to teach all people to become disciples of Jesus Christ and whatever that might look like for them. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father. We come to you this morning. We thank you for your word. We know your word changes us. We know your word challenges us. And we know the gospel continues to challenge society and continues to challenge what we believe is normal and correct. Father, help us see clearly how both men and women can live into the gifts you've given them. Help us be sensitive to those who've been hurt and domineered by other churches and by other people. Help us see through our prejudices. Help us move towards people who are different. And help us realign our lives in light of the gospel. Father, we don't claim to have all this figured out, but we're going to continue to trust in Jesus. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen.